I love those hymns that we can sing a few times and get to lean into. Um, it is in God that we can find our rest and peace. That's our hope, not only with the first reading, but with the second reading this morning. Um, a little prep before we get into the second reading. Uh, we're returning to the book of Exodus this morning. Um, some of you may have thought we were done after the Ten Commandments. There's more of Exodus left, um, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit longer on it this year. Uh, and after 10 weeks at Mount Sinai, we're finally ready. We can move out. We don't have to do anything more with laws, right? Well, see about that. Um, the, the Israelites actually spend the entirety of the rest of Exodus at Mount, at Mount Sinai. Um, and, and it's for a variety of reasons. After the Ten Commandments, God gives Moses another 42 laws. So that means we got another 42. So, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, scholars refer to these 42 laws as the book of the covenant. Now, there's a lot of really interesting material here, but we're going to restrict ourselves to like two Sundays on this book of the covenant. We're going to focus on a couple of representative laws. This is the beginning of what we're calling life with God, the fifth movement in our year-long study of Exodus. And it's in this section of the narrative that God ratifies the covenant with the children of Israel. God actually comes down and has a meal with the elders of Israel and offers blueprints and directions for the people's worship. At each step of this movement, we see something about God's character and God's priorities. Now, we're spending time with a couple of these laws in the book of the covenant, in part because I think one of the hardest challenges for us as people of faith is to figure out how to approach the laws of the Old Testament. What do you do about, for example, kosher laws and the other dietary laws that you read about in Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers? I mean, I, I'm going to say it. I don't want to go without bacon, right? Um, and yet, the laws in Exodus and Leviticus would have us not eat bacon and other unclean animals. So where do we figure out which laws to hold up like the Ten Commandments and which laws to do something else with? How do we determine which laws are binding and which laws aren't for our lives today? That's the question that I want us to sit with when we read this second reading from Exodus 21. Uh, you can find uh, the, this reading if you open up your Red Pew Bibles on page 67 of the Old Testament. We'll be reading from Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 through 36. That's 21, 28 through 36. Listen now for God's word to you. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not restrained it, and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on the owner, then the owner shall pay whatever is imposed for the redemption of the victim's life. Now, if it gores a boy or a girl, the owner shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall pay to the slave owner 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If someone leaves a pit open or digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution, giving money to its owner, but keeping the dead animal. 
If someone's ox hurts the ox of another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the price of it. And the dead animal they shall also divide. But if it was known that the ox was accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not restrained it, the owner shall restore ox for ox, but keep the dead animal. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? As we read your holy word, O Lord, may it read us as well. May its words of grace and mercy become our words by the power of your Holy Spirit, speaking through us the hope and salvation we have in Jesus Christ, your word made flesh. Amen. Now, maybe you've come across passages of scriptures like the passages of scripture like this before. You know, those passages that you don't really have a bucket for. Right? Like when we get the teachings of Jesus, for example, I generally know how I interact with those. They're challenging, and they're pretty universally applicable. They continue to read me and to push me to transform myself into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, when we read um, the, the, the writings of Paul, that's another one where, uh, you know, we can pretty immediately apply much of those texts. And even the stories of the heroes and the heroines of Scripture, even when they act in unheroic ways, they show the beauty of a God that takes imperfections and turns them into beauty and goodness. With the prophets, we can see how they speak out against injustice, how they point the people to a better path. Even many of the laws, like the Ten Commandments, we can justify spending time with, we can kind of see the logic of and, and what's going on there. They're profound universal truths about how to love God and love neighbor. But when we get to goring oxen, this is where I draw the line, friends. What do we do with these laws that don't seem to have anything to say to our lives today? I heard a statistic uh, earlier this week that back at the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s, 40% of Americans were farmers, and now that number is like less than 1%. And so even if at that time, even 100 years ago, this may have been more applicable, people in the agricultural business, people who are um, growing things and caring for animals, and now much of this is lost on many of us. What is the gospel message? in these laws about oxen running amok, about pits being dug. I think it can be tempting to either read these passages and toss them aside, uh, thinking that they have no application for our lives today, as, as some of us might. It can also be tempting, uh, th there, there are other Christians who swing the other way, and they take all of the 613 laws of the Torah, and they say these are immediately applicable to our modern context. We should keep these in the same way that they did then. Uh, I don't know that I buy either of these ways of parsing the law. I don't think that the 613 laws of Torah are all immediately applicable to our context, but I don't think we can justify just throwing pieces of our scripture away. I think that fails to understand the authority that scripture still has over us. But if we try just to lift these laws out of the time and place into which God gave them and drop them into our time and place, I think that fails to recognize that human beings and the culture we make shifts and changes constantly. 
I mean, even with my own children, like I have a vision for how they're going to flourish and thrive, but I can't keep this, I can't like apply the exact same laws to both of them as any of you who've raised children know. You might have a similar vision, but it's going to look very different in how you ask them to actually behave. So we need a way to address these laws that names both their universality as part of God's authoritative and inspired word, while also allowing for these laws to exist in a particular time and place. So what I want to try to do is instead of looking at these laws about, these laws are not just about oxen and pits. And instead of looking at these laws as if they're just about oxen and pits, I want to look at these laws as saying something about God and saying something about human beings. We tracking so far? Okay. There are, there are like, broadly speaking, I think three scenarios described in this passage. I'm going to generalize, and then I'm going to say kind of what I think is, is going on. So an ox scores a person or another animal and has never done so before. That's like the first example that they give. The second scenario that is lifted up in this passage is an ox gores a human being or another animal and like has been known to do it before. This is an ox that has been identified as a threat in the community. And then the third scenario is that an animal is injured and, or killed by walking into a pit dug by someone. There are like different like decision trees that go through these, these different scenarios. And, and I think that it's, it's interesting. We could spend some time talking about the different consequences for free people and for slaves in this passage. Um, there's an opportunity to discuss why Israel, having just been liberated from slavery in Egypt, would themselves keep slaves. But that's kind of beyond the scope of this sermon today. I want to note that, and I want to note how easy it is for us to become the oppressors after we've been liberated from oppression. Um, but we'll spend some time with that later, not today. Uh, these three scenarios, though, there are a couple of themes I think we can take from them without getting into the decision tree about like who has been hurt. Uh, we can see that life matters to God, whether the life is a person or whether the life is an animal. And taking a life, even accidentally, incurs a cost. That's something that uh, happens in each scenario. There are reparations that are demanded when an injury is suffered. The second thing I, I want you to notice is that it's appropriate to take action when we see patterns of behavior. Maybe you noticed that if an ox was going to be, if an ox was known to be a goring threat and the owner didn't take action, it wasn't just the ox that had its life forfeit. It was also the owner. So this might make sense to you. You may be tracking with me, but what I'm curious about is how many of you have heard the phrase forgive and forget? Have you heard this before? And, and maybe you might even think that this is what Jesus would have us do. I'm curious how that, that idea of forgive and forget meshes with the idea of tracking patterns of behavior. Are we supposed to forgive and forget, or are we supposed to mark the oxen that are goring threats, in other words? Because it's not always just about oxen, as we talked about. There are sometimes people in your lives that you know are maybe not goring threats, but you know our threats to your attention, threats to your time. I've asked this um, in part as an abstract question. For many of us, this is not abstract. 
I know that in the church I grew up in, there was a single parent who relied on the community for support, which is good. That's what the church is for. But this individual continued asking for more and more support in inappropriate ways. I learned later that this person used many of the resources that the community offered to buy drugs or alcohol. Is this a person who we should mark patterns of behavior with? Or is this a person who we should forgive and forget? Or another example, I have a cousin who chooses to use what money he has to buy things that he wants instead of paying for what he needs. Instead of making his car payment, he gets designer shoes. Or instead of groceries, a puppy. After making these decisions, he then comes and asks family members to help him pay for what he needs. Is this a case where we should mark patterns of behavior and live wisely? Or is this a case in which we should forgive and forget? This is not an easy question, I don't think. And if we were to look at this law and take a straight reading of the law, using our interpretive strategy of seeing what this law says about human beings instead of what it says about animals, about pits, and so on and so forth, I think that this passage would give us a straightforward answer. And that's don't enable destructive patterns of behavior. Or you could put it another way. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. Now, in one version of this sermon, this might be the end of the story. But the question I've been aiming to respond to is where the gospel message is in these laws. And if we were to take that as the gospel message, friends, I don't think there's a whole lot of gospel in there. If you only are who your previous decisions make you, there's not a whole lot of gospel. That's just another more generalizable law, you know? And I don't think I need, as valuable as God's laws are, I don't need another law in my life. I need the grace of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is all about Jesus saving us from sin and death while we were still in bondage to sin and death. While we were still allied with the powers of darkness, that's when Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, God, I'd really like to help those people you love, but they really need to show me they don't waste my gift of salvation first. They need to show me that they've got good patterns of behavior, then I'll go down. And give my, that's not what Jesus said. No, as Paul tells us in Romans 5, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. In fact, in our first reading today, we heard about a Roman centurion who asked Jesus to come heal his servant. Now, a Roman centurion represented the military boot on the neck of the Hebrew people. Rome was not always kind to the countries that it overtook. But Jesus did not say, I'll only heal your servant if you stop persecuting my people. Jesus led with mercy, sharing the grace and love the centurion required. Jesus' love had no strings attached and was freely given. This, friends, is the paradox at the heart of this text. We are invited to notice patterns of behavior. And if we notice destructive patterns that are in our control to restrain, 
If we notice destructive patterns that are in our control to set boundaries around, we're responsible, I think, for ensuring that no one is harmed by them. And as anyone who's tried to break a bad habit knows, this can be really, really hard. But when it comes to other people's patterns of behavior, I think we're called to a yet more difficult task. We're called to notice these patterns of behavior and then to love people despite the patterns we notice. Now, to be clear, when we love them, this doesn't necessarily mean giving other people everything they ask for. Sometimes choosing to love another person means saying no to them, means saying, I can't help you with your costs this month because I know you have the money. It might mean that you have to say no because you know that they're using your means, your materials to enable destructive patterns of behavior. But when we choose to love someone, when we choose to love someone despite the decisions that they make, it means continually opening ourselves to be happily surprised by who they are becoming. Because friends, we are not only who we've been, we are also who God has called us to become. When we love someone, we allow them to have space to change, to have space to grow, to have space to break their patterns of behavior. When we love someone, it sometimes even means that we support them in how they change and how they grow. When we love someone, it means acting toward them how Jesus has acted toward us. So as we consider the 613 different laws you can find in Torah, including the Ten Commandments, including laws about oxen goring and pits being dug, remember, they still offer us guidance today. They still give us a taste of good news, a window into how we can love our neighbors. But also remember that it's not just the law that tells us how we can love our neighbors. It's the gospel that shows us too. And the Christian life is held sort of in the paradox between offering grace and holding accountable people for their actions, including ourselves. So let's forgive while still living wisely. Let's also be willing to forgive over and over and over again. As Jesus says, not seven times should you forgive your sibling in Christ, but 70 times seven. As we say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Friends, this is how we can follow Christ in being agents of both accountability and of good news in the world. May it be so. Amen.